Well, this morning, the scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2. We've been looking through a series of sermons on the book of 1 Peter. Today, we're reading verses 1 to 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So please join me as I read this word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, offer, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this time in our service that we can hear from you. And Lord, we confess that we need to hear your word. And we pray that the word would be encouraging, uplifting. Your, your word would be life to us. Your word would be a flashlight that can shine into the darkness. Your word would lead us to see your beauty and your glory and your worth. So lead us during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This last week I was uh, re-watching a movie that is, uh, I think, very appropriate for our time. It's... Uh, Cast Away with Tom Hanks, and it came out, I think of it as the perfect quarantine movie. It's the perfect quarantine movie because it's about a man. Tom Hanks plays a character named Chuck Nolan. He's a systems analyst for FedEx. His plane crashes on a deserted island, and he spends four years there struggling to survive, isolated, in exile in many ways. And he's so desperate for any kind of interaction. He has a volleyball that was part of a package, a FedEx package. And he makes it, he forms a a face on it. And he calls that ball, of course, Wilson. And he talks to it. He's a, that's his only friend. He has a picture of his fiance that he looks at every night. And, you know, before the crash, he had part, he was, had a job that was all about, uh, efficiency. He was trying to get those packages on time, efficiently. He was always on the go. Uh, he was so uh, wrapped up in his work that he didn't even have time for his fiance. He didn't have time to propose to her in a proper way. But now after he crashed on this island, all he had was time. And he realized that what was more important than time was his relationships. Realized his relationships was that they were everything. Not his job, not efficiency, not all these things. 
people, community. That's the important thing he realized on that island. Throughout the series, we've been looking at this idea of exile. Some of us feel like we're on in exile, that we're away from people and community. And today what we want to look at is Peter tells exiles, people who feel alone, who are struggling, that we're not alone. And how God calls his people always into community, especially in exile, that we're called to be an exile community together. God's calling is never for just individuals. God's calling is always for a community. His blessings always come in community. Revival always happens in community. And so today, as we look at this idea of community, we're, we're just looking at three things from 1 Peter 2. We're going to look at God's new community, what it is. Secondly, growing community, how to grow it. Finally, the center of community, the thing that ultimately brings us together. Those three things. And the first thing I want to look at is God's new community. We're looking at this letter that the apostle Peter writes to Christians throughout Asia. And he writes this letter to them. Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. He was one of the original 12 disciples who knew all about Jesus, who walked with Jesus, heard all Jesus' sermons. And he knew the ministry philosophy of Jesus. What was that? Jesus' ministry philosophy was first, not to first build people, but to first build a community. That was always his priority. That's why Jesus started not by ministering to thousands of people all at once, but simply starting with 12. And he invested all of his time, not on these masses, but 12. He built a community of 12 individuals. Jesus was all about building community. The number of disciples was important, 12, because that mirrored the Old Testament people of God, which was the 12 tribes of Israel. In the Old Testament, God's people were 12 tribes from different lines of people. And that was the community of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were the people of God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus' time was 12 disciples. What about right now? What is, what, what is the people of God right now? This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter uses three phrases that was reserved for Israel in the Old Testament, used in Exodus. Uh, those, those phrases were chosen people, royal priesthood, God's special possession. Those are all phrases used of Israel. And now what does Peter say? Peter says, now those description of Israel now belong to the church. Remember, Peter is writing to non-Jewish Christians in Asia. But now Peter is saying, the church is the new Israel. You are now the people of God, God's special possession. The church is the new people of God that is both Jews and Gentiles. It's people from all the races. The church is the new Israel. It's the new people of God. It has all God's promises. One of the ways to translate it, chosen people, 
first first phrase used of the church is a chosen race. Chosen race. You know, in the first century, Christians were considered a new race. They were considered a new race. Even in the first century, people were very race conscious. So you had your own tribe, people from your own nation, and they were very conscious of their race, of where they came from. But Christians in the first century upset that social order. They refused to just associate with their own tribe and their people. Greeks treated Romans like brothers. Cappadocians went to church with Jewish people and they worshiped together. And they upset this social order and they were uh, considered a new race, another race, which was a race with all the other races. The community of God, the master plan, God's master plan for the church is a church filled with different nations and races and tribes that is all together. That's the new people of God. Diversity is God's dream for the church. It's not part of some liberal agenda. That's God's dream. Diversity is God's dream first. It's his idea. It's his dream for his people of God. But the second thing about this community is not just diverse, but it's, it's filled with people who are, were outcasts. Listen to verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And it says that this community that God is building is filled with people who are rejected, rejected by humans. If you look at the Old Testament, God loves to pick and choose people who are rejected. He looks to, he loves to pick out people who are overlooked and say, I'm going to build my church with you. For instance, in the Old Testament, God chose David to be the, the great king. David was the youngest. He's usually the oldest that's chosen. He was the smallest. He was a mama's boy. He was a shepherd. And God says, I'm going to choose you to be the greatest king. God bypasses Esau. Esau's the oldest. Esau is the hunter, the man's man. And God bypasses Esau to choose who? Jacob. Jacob was the mama's boy. He was the younger son. And God said, I'm, I'm going to bypass Esau. I'm picking Jacob. Jacob's my man. The, the pattern of God from the Old Testament and New Testament is he loves to pick the, the re- rejects, the outsiders, the nobodies. And he says, I love you. I'm going to build my church with you. The church is a new people of God, not just from every nation, but from people who were considered outcasts. First Corinthians 1, Paul says, I chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I love to choose people who are outsiders, who are weak, who are rejected, who are nobodies, and I love to pick them up. And I love my people to be composed of people who were insignificant in the world, But I accept and I build. They are my chosen and precious people. In the church, God takes the proud and he humbles them. And he takes a weak and he strengthens them. So that in the church, there is radical equality. That's the vision of the church. I was watching the NBA playoffs last week. And it's in a bubble. There are no fans. And uh, one highlight was an undrafted player. A player every team passed up on, 
was the leading score, was the hero. And I love stories like that, the underdog, the one nobody had an eye on, rises up to be the MVP. That's God's story. God loves to take people who nobody wants, and he turns them into the MVP. He lifts them up. Vision of the church. It's the beautiful, the beautiful church that God's dreams of is a church from all different races and tribes. It's filled with nobodies that God loves and turns into somebodies. It's the proud who are humbled, and it's all by God's grace. Nobody can say it's them. It's all God. It's all his glory. It's all his beauty. He lifts up the broken. He humbles the proud. He gathers the scattered. And that's his beautiful church. That's the vision. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. So here's the second thing. How do we get there? That's a beautiful vision, you say. But how do we, what do we do? The church is, the church that really tries to live out that vision, uh, really is doing a great thing, a God thing. But we have to realize it's difficult. You know, Peter himself in the first century, uh, Peter and Paul, the pillars of the church, were given that vision. But they even, Peter himself struggled with that. In the early church, they were both Jews and Gentiles. And they're called to be part of the same church, to worship together. But what happened was that they, after church, separated. Peter himself only ate with Jewish Christians, did not fellowship with Gentile Christians. So Paul had to call them out in front of everyone. Paul says, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. That's not right what you're doing. The early church was diverse but divided. It was a difficult thing because their mind was still my tribe, my my people. It's still top down. It's very difficult for us to get away from that. I had a friend who uh, who attends a church in Northern California. This church was predominantly white and Asian. Sat together during worship, but he says after during the donut fellowship time, he says the white people went one way and the Asian people went another way. He says it was like the parting of the Red Sea, <laughs> that they worshiped together, but fellowship, they were very separate. They were diverse, but they were divided. And that's the challenge for the church today, that we have to overcome all of these very human barriers that are erected against us. That's why Paul says that we need to mature. We need to grow into this vision. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says that we have to grow up in our salvation. When you become a Christian, you're born again. That's an amazing thing. You're a new person, but you're a baby. And you need to grow up into maturity. Peter's saying, church, let's grow up. Let's, let's get away from our past life. That's what he's saying. Our past We've been born again, but now we need to grow and have new patterns of behavior, of thoughts, of speech. He focuses on verse 1, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit. These are two very broad words. Malice means 
that in our community, the new community of God, there has to be an absence of all evil. There has to be an absence of all deceit. Anything that is untruthful, lying, manipulation, misrepresentation. Peter gives specific example of things that we need to get rid of. He says hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Hypocrisy is a community killer. It's a thing that kills community. Hypocrisy is appearing one way but living in a very different way. And there are, there are, there are lesser forms of hypocrisy that stunt community. You know, sometimes when, especially now when someone asks me how I'm doing, I'm tempted just to say, I'm doing great. I'm doing good. Even though this has been a hard season for me. I've been, I've been down. I've been out at times. But it's easy for me to put on a face, especially as a pastor, to say, it's all good. I'm good. I'm great. But, you know, that's the community cannot be built when people are playing roles or wearing masks. Community happens when we are able to let people in. You know, in the church, I love to say it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. Your community grows when we let each other in, when we tell the truth about ourselves and our struggle. When we accept each other, we build each other up. It's important, it's, it's important if you feel depressed to, to let other people into that. That's what community is. I was reading a survey that just came out that said pre-pandemic, uh, close to 8% of people said that they had some symptoms of depression. Now, they've redone that survey. Over 30% of, the same, of people now say they have some form of depression. That's triple the number of people who feel some element of depression in their life. This pandemic is hitting us, is taking a toll on our mental health, on our well-being. And really, in community, we should let each other in to our lives. Let people in. Let other people carry that and walk with you with that. Community is this, this idea that we, we put off the, those false stories we tell ourselves and other people. Uh, Peter also says, get rid of envy and slander. Envy and slander, man, those, those are all over the place. Just go on social media. Social media is a place of envy and slander. People tell false stories about themselves that create envy, and we slander each other. We attack each other. We tear each other down online. And Peter is saying, get rid of all that. That's not in the church. Instead of envying each other, we should rejoice like that happened to us. Instead of slandering, we, we build each other up. We use our words to lift up, to encourage, to bless. Peter says we need a new mindset in the church. It's not that old life. Envy, slander, hypocrisy, we put those off. But we have a new mindset positively. He says this in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God. Precious to him, you also, the living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter, he wants us to change a mindset from individualism to realize we're part of this corporate community of God. 
He says that we're all living stones. We're part of the spiritual house. Think about this idea of a stone. Pick up a stone. It's, it's nothing. It's just a stone. But Peter says, no, you're not just a stone. You're part of a cathedral. You're a stone in a cathedral that God is building. A cathedral of praise. You're part of something bigger. Zoom out of your life. Realize you're part of something greater, something bigger, a community being built up into spiritual household. Peter continues the metaphor. Not only are you part of this household, but you're also a priest. He says you're part of a holy priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, there was just one line of the 12 tribes, one tribe that was a tribe of priests. Only they could come into the presence of God. Only they could offer sacrifices. But Peter says, you are all priests. We're a nation of priests. We're the new nation. We're the new people of God. And in this new people of God, every single person is a priest. Everybody. Martin Luther called this the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That the milkmaid who works is as holy as the preacher who preaches a sermon. We're all as sacred and holy. We all have a calling in our lives to minister. Sometimes I have people who ask me, Pastor, how how can I serve the church? You know, there are certain roles that we need. But ultimately, we're we're all priests. We don't need permission to serve. We're all priests. We're all called to use everything we have to love, to serve, to give, to bless with the words. To pray for people, to hold the hands of the suffering in the midst. We're all called to that ministry. One of the brothers uh, I was just on the phone with this week was sharing about how blessed he is by the church. He says his uh, he and his wife just had a child a few months back. He took paternity leave and he realized that his company didn't actually cover all of that paternity leave, and he didn't know that. And he said the mercy team came in, and they paid his rent for him for that month. He was blessed. He was moved by that. He said that his uh, the newborn baby, they didn't have AC in their house, and the, one of the members from our church found out, and she put together funds to give them a portable AC unit. And he was moved by that, and, and he, he called me to say, hey, I, now, now I want to serve the church. I feel so blessed by people. I want to serve. I have a list of things I want to do. <laughs> and he wants to serve, and he wants to bless. That's the church. That's what the community of God is about. God has this beautiful vision for the church, this diverse ministry, this people of God. This collection of outcasts that that God loves. This ministry of priests where we're all serving, we're all giving, we're all loving. But here's the final thing. The final thing about this all is that ultimately it's not a man-made thing that we all come together by our own strength. But ultimately what the center of a church is something God does. And this is the last point, the center of community. You know, it's harder to do church now more than ever. Especially in the midst of this pandemic, it's been hard because we're not together. It's hard to be the church when we're not together. Secondly, it's hard to do church now because we're really, the church is very divided today by race and politics. In ways that we haven't seen before. One pastor said, friend said he's been struggling because 
he's been uh, struggling with whether to be to meet or not. He says some members are like, we should meet. This is God's mandate. He's like, other people are like, no, we should not meet. And he gets emails from different sides all the time. We should meet. We should not meet. Let's be safe. No, God, God comes first. Another pastor was telling me that he's speaking about Black Lives Matter from the church. He's trying to, he's trying to encourage people about being uh, active and supporting our black brothers and friends. But he's getting all this pushback from members who are saying, you're bringing politics into the church. Why are you getting so political? You know, pastors face all kinds of divide that is reflected in our society. What do we do with all of that? One thing that we could do is let's just not talk about any of these divisive issues. Let's pretend like it doesn't exist, like that will solve the problem. Another thing churches do is that they do talk about that explicitly, and they draw lines, and it divides. And a church is divided along race and politics. You have people in one church with just one political affiliation, one race. And it doesn't reflect the diversity of God's beautiful kingdom as well. So what is the solution? Ultimately, we need a vision that is greater and beyond all of us. Ultimately, we need to follow a vision of the king and be directed in issues of justice by God's word and God's truth. And we need to let that truth lead us. We need the glory of God and his vision for the church to lead us. And that's why Peter leads with this ultimate center that holds everything together. And that is the person of Jesus. First Peter 2, 6 to 7, Peter says, For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah 26, 28, 16. And Isaiah speaks about a precious cornerstone. You know, in the Old Testament, the temple, before the temple was built, there was a cornerstone made with the most precious material. And this cornerstone was cut so precisely that all the other angles and stones in the building t- took its cue from that cornerstone. It was the most important part of any building. It was the most precious. It, every single angle and stone took its direction from that cornerstone. Isaiah said, this cornerstone was rejected by man, but God built his church on it. That cornerstone is Jesus. He was rejected by men, by his own people he was rejected. He was put on the cross, but God, to God he was precious. And he built his church, and Jesus resurrected from the grave. And he built his church on the cornerstone of Jesus. Jesus now leads the church. What brings people together, disparate people from all nations and tribes, from all different kinds of persuasion, what brings them together is Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us all together. It is him and his love and his power and his grace which draws us together to be part of one body. The metaphor of Jesus in the cornerstone is one of radical unity. That Jesus is one with his people. 
He is the cornerstone. We are this church with the same building. In other metaphors that Paul uses, Jesus is the head. We are his body. And those metaphors are about radical unity, that God is so with us. Jesus is so with us. He's united to us. The Harvard professor, Michael Sandel, he teaches a a course on ethics. And he uses this illustration. He says, imagine that you are walking along a river and a man calls out to you. And he says, help, I'm drowning. And he says, grab that rope. And there's a rope by your feet and you you, you, you grab that rope. And you're trying to pull him out, but you, you can't pull him out. There's this, this wave that's raging. You can't pull him out. You can hold on. So you wrap the rope around your waist. And for hours, you try to pull him in, and you realize you can't, you can't pull him up. There's no way. No one else is passing by you. The hours are going by, and you realize that you, you can't stay there forever. So you, get, you, you try to take it off, and he says, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die if you let go of that rope. Hours pass by again. Michael Sandel says that every rational person at some point in time will let go of that rope. And he says there's two reasons for that. One is you're not responsible. You didn't put him in that river. You're no more, more responsible for him in that river than anybody else. He doesn't have a claim on your life. Secondly, if you keep holding on to that rope, you, your life is going to be in danger. It's not just one life that is going to perish. It might be two. He says every rational person at some point will let go of that rope and let that person drive. At some moment, you're going to do that. Every person, but not Jesus. The story of the gospel is Jesus so unites himself to us. That he dies for us. He will not let go of that rope. He puts himself in the place we deserve, which is the cross. And even after he resurrects from the grave, he still doesn't let go of us. He's united to us. He will always be with us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That father would soonest deny Jesus than deny us. We are united to him. We are his body. He's the head. That's the love of Jesus for you. The love of God. That Jesus would unite himself to you. You are his bride, his beloved. And that vision of Jesus and the greatness of Jesus, that's what draws us all together. Even though we might be very different politically, ethnically, class-wise, we might be so different. You know, that's the brilliance about Jesus in the gospel. No matter where you come from, Jesus resonates with you. You know, the, the powerful thing about Christianity today is that it's growing all around the world. Some of the places it's grown the most is Africa, the underground church in China, South America. It's on fire. People are coming to the Lord. It's not just a a white thing. It's not just a North American thing. It's not just a middle class thing. But Jesus resonates with people all over the world. The gospel of Jesus resonates for, for, for a Ugandan who lives in the slums of Kampala. And they see in Jesus someone who is poor and broken, but has overcome all things. The gospel resonates for a Chinese Christian in an underground church who daily feels the threat of persecution. In a shame-based culture, these Chinese Christians realize Jesus has took my shame. He's my true king and authority, and I have nothing to fear. 
the gospel resonates with African Americans who feel threatened, persecuted. But they look to the cross and see Jesus was lynched. He was oppressed. And they feel a deep resonance. This Jesus. Well, he transcends cultures. Asian, African-American, white, Hispanic. They all see in Jesus something different. Isn't that powerful? They see in Americans who value freedom. And I said to them, well, Jesus is the great liberator. If you want freedom, he's going to liberate you. If you want to really find true joy, it's found in him. He, he, our hearts, as Augustine says, says, is restless till we find a rest in him. Whether you are intellectual, whether you are more experiential, the gospel of Jesus can resonate with anybody. I could preach the gospel to any culture or people and find something in that culture that deeply resonates. The person of Jesus deeply resonates with them. I was just in Vietnam talking to Vietnamese Christians, and the gospel of Jesus has deep resonance in that culture. It's growing. The church in Vietnam, church in Cambodia, the church in Southeast Asia, because Jesus is greater. He calls the nations to himself. That's the power of Jesus. The key practice that therefore unites the church is worship. Worship is the thing that when the church is primarily preoccupied with anything other than worship, there's disunity. But when the church is primarily focused on worship, it draws us all together. He's the center. Therefore, the key activity in the church is not just worship, but it's primarily worship. Because worship is the thing that draws us together. There's deep unity. What drives the church is not so much our politics, but our praise. That's what directs us. We can be a people of different political persuasions, but what drives us together is not our politics, but our praise. And that's what leads us, this person of Jesus. Jim Sabala, he uh, is a pastor of one of the most diverse churches in American Brooklyn. He says what drives his church is worship. What drives this church is prayer, that people come together from different ethnicities and classes, and they pray together, and they sing together. And that creates this deep unity that is found in the church. The glory of God draws us together. The beauty of God gives us joy. And what we need, especially right now, is we need worship. Worship. We need beautiful worship. We need worship that is diverse, that is beautiful. We need worship that will direct our hearts to things that really do matter. And after that worship, there are, dip, there, there are definitely different things that the church does. There are issues of justice. There are issues of mercy. and that, But that flows out of worship. You see that? That flows out of worship. Worship has to be the center first. When the church is diverse and when it is f- flowing with praise... Guess what happens? First Peter 2, 9 says, we're going to show the world that God has taken us out of the darkness into his beautiful light. 
The, the world today is divided by race and by politics, but when they see in the church diverse people getting together, it is a witness to the world that there is someone greater. The church is a testimony to that. Does the church reflect the world in all of its racial and political divisions, or does the church transcend those things and point to a greater reality? That is the task of the church today. So I challenge you to love the church. I challenge you to be a worshiper and and anticipate the day when you can come together, that we can praise together, that we can sing together. Would this time of exile make you anticipate the day when the church can be the church together, that we can proclaim together out of the darkness God has brought us into his wonderful light. In this world of division, there is someone so greater, more beautiful, more more transcendent. And in your homes today and throughout the week, would you worship? Worship is not just together. It is primarily. But would we worship as foretaste of our gathering together and our worship at the end time when every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be gathered to sing his praise? Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks for it today, and we know that today the the world needs a church more than ever, but unfortunately, the church has decided to become very much like the world, and we lament that, Lord. We, We lament when the church is like the world, so divided, uh, so hostile, so not together. And we, we know that when the church decides to be like the world, it's not a witness. It's actually an anti-witness. Because non-believers look at the church and they say they are just like everyone else. They're hypocrites. But Lord, we long for the day when the church will not be like the world. When the world is divided, the church will be united. When the, when the world is beating down the weak, the church would lift up the weak. Church will be a place where there's radical equality. The church will be a place of radical praise. And Lord, we long for that day. We pray that that would happen at City Light, that we'd be a city on a hill in Los Angeles. Lord, we need the world needs a church more than ever. The city needs a church more than ever. So help us to be the church, not in our own power or strength, but by your spirit. And pray that as we sing these praises, that you would bring us together for what we were created to do. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.